How many of you guys follow the, follow the ball in the cups? Can we do this? Okay. Which one is it under? Okay. <laughs> that, uh, that served a purpose <laughs> more than you think that it did. Um, you're like, what in the world, Mitch? Okay. You know, these things just come to me and I have to do them. So that's for you this morning. Everybody, uh, grab your Bible, open to uh, Acts chapter 5. Well, after I, um, I sort of nuked my sermon last week and we went to, uh, a different way about it. Um, we're going to be getting to um, the story uh, here where uh, Ananias and Sapphira uh, are, are judged in the midst of the congregation. And so um, today's uh, lesson will be uh, primarily um, through 5, chapter 5, 1 through 11, but we need to rewind just a little bit uh, into chapter 4 to uh, get to Barnabas and... Um, and the importance of that. And so, um, you know, I, I th- I've been different places, uh, different countries, and even at different people's houses, and they have different, like, customs about what they feel is appropriate in, in their various rooms. And some people, um, how many of you guys are take off your shoes at the door kind of homes? Like, leave your shoes at the door, and you only walk. And, and the, 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 partially what's behind this, right, is the idea that you've been traveling outside, and so you take off your shoes because they're all dirty, right? And so you don't want to track it all over the carpet. But, but um, you know, just different people have different ways of, of keeping their, their space clean. But everybody kind of, in general, um, understands the importance of keeping certain areas um, free of contamination. And... Um, so the kitchen is, is kind of the, the one that we can relate to the most because most people understand that when you're around food, either preparing it or eating it, you don't just do things that uh, would, would get it dirty. So most people don't, uh, you know, put their feet up on the kitchen table. How many of you guys would be kind of weirded out by that? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I joked uh, at the, in the primer that, um, you know, why isn't there a toilet in the kitchen? And you're like, well, duh, right? But there was a uh, house that we looked at one time. We were in uh, a small town in Iowa. And um, there was literally, like, where the pantry used to be, I think they just installed a toilet there for convenience, and it was in the kitchen. And it was, like, just, just big enough for... And, and there was no sink. It was just the toilet. And it was literally just big enough to get into there. And it was, the, it was one of the weirdest things. But I also mentioned, like, different cultures um, do things differently. And so, you know, when I go to, like, make, make dinner or whatever, Rebecca always tells me, hey, make sure you wipe down the counter so that uh, you're not contaminating the food. But most of us wouldn't think of, like, starting to prepare something on, like, the floor, or if there's dirt or something like that. But sometimes that's unavoidable, like, in other countries. So whenever we were in Africa, um, I I would just kind of observe, and you'd kind of, like, catch view of kind of the ladies in the back of the house, and they're preparing the food. But it's all outside, like, in the grass and in the dirt and stuff. And so you just go, you know, the Lord knows. So if he's going to preserve me, it's going to be fine. And um, and so we have to, we, we, we understand inherently the need to, keep things, I'll use the word holy now, to, to make this uh, a better illustration for you. 
We understand the need to keep things separate for a designated purpose. And the reason why you do those things and you take certain measures or steps or why you clean things out and you sort of revere and respect those spaces is because they're supposed to be cleaned and you understand the problem if you introduce contamination into those areas. And so um, let me just recap last week in like two brief statements. The first was God is holy and you're not, okay? And that's important, but also uh, subsequent to that reality is that uh, God is the owner of everything and you are a, a steward, a manager of all that God has and has, has given you, not just of stuff, but even of life, like the breath in your lungs. That's given to you by God. And, um, and we talked about that. And so, um, lest I, I make it feel like your whole life is a big test, it more or less is um, a question of what is inside your heart and how does that come out in the way of your management of all things that belong to God. So we, we kind of talked about that last week, and I felt like that was an important groundwork. And um, the reason being is this. So if we were to just jump in, I assert some things about the church. I just say, hey, the church is the place where God's people are. And you're like, yep, I get that. I say, this is the place where God's presence is. And you're like, sure. And I say, the Holy Spirit is here. And he's even inside of you if you're a believer and you have faith. And you're like, great. Like, I, I can get, I agree with all of those statements. But disconnected from a, um, a, a, a longer history, disconnected from an original purpose, um, you will miss the purpose of this text. So if you just jump into the middle of um, the Bible, starting at the New Testament, and you begin to read things, and then we, uh, we walk through it, and then I ask you, what was that about? Like, what, what's the purpose of that? Why is that even in here? And uh, you, you probably make some, some conclusions about it because of the way it's presented or some certain details that are given. But without this longer thing, without the, the, the connected purpose of it, um, you, will, you will inevitably wind up in the wrong place. And I, I hope to um, help you see that for yourself here in just a second. So um, let's read together Acts. I'm going to start in... Um, chapter 4, just so we can get to the end of it, um, and uh, read through 11 this morning. But before we do that, let me pray, and then um, we'll see what the Lord would teach us this morning. Father, I pray that um, this would not be um, a novel presentation this morning, that it's not something that's um, just knowledge to change our brains. Uh, it's not a new fact for us to, to know. God, but that we would, by hearing and beholding and accepting and holding on to your truth this morning, you would do work in us. Father, this is um, a purposeful time and a purposeful activity that we're engaging in. So, Father, help us to not take it lightly. We are opening your word. We're asking you to speak to us. And uh, we trust that you will honor that in faith. So, God, this morning, do speak to our hearts and to our lives. Pray that it would not be my words, but yours this morning. And as always, I ask that you would help us by your spirit to equip us and do the work that's necessary by giving us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the hearts that are soft to receive what you would 
say and how you might shape, change, how you'd want to shape and mold us this morning. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's, uh, let's read through this uh, together. And um, I want to make sure I have the right scripture. Yep, here we go. Uh, starting in 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Just plant that in, in your brain. That uh, everybody was together. They were all of one heart, one soul, and no one said that anything was for his own purposes. Said that it was, it was for me and for me alone. Okay? But they had everything in common. Now, verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. Um, it says that... Uh, that's also an important line. There was not a needy person from among them. And as many as were uh, owners of lands or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. And he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. So, so don't, don't get the sense that this is like a new, this is not a new topic. It's the same story. It's unfortunate that it's disconnected by a chapter division there. But here we are. So contrasting Joseph, who's been named Barnabas, but now a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge. He, ba- he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and he, bo- and he brought only a part of it and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose, and they wrapped him up, and they carried him out, and they buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out too. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So, um, you, you, this is rhetorical, but I do want you to actually answer it. In, in your own minds, in your own brains, what is this story about? What is this teaching me? I mentioned some questions last week that uh, left, left untethered to a greater story and a bigger purpose will lead you down some paths that will mess you up. Like, let me, let me just throw this out for you. Like, were they saved? Were they believers? And however you answer that question, you're like, well, I don't know, because maybe we don't get to know that. Well, it's, it's in here for a reason, right? And if they were saved, and if they were believers, what about Grace? And uh, if they weren't, then 
why is God killing unbelievers? Because they're doing things that unbelievers do, which is sin, right? And, and so whether or not that's a mess you feel like you can untangle, move, move forward and then go, don't people sin in greater ways than this all the time, even in the church? Haven't you seen pastors with great scandals? And why isn't God killing those people? And so however it is that you feel like you could answer or not answer this question is largely dependent on how, um, how well you've connected it to the rest of the story. And so um, it's important this morning that uh, you understand um, the, the, the distinction that you think in your brain without even thinking about it is that, oh yeah, in the Old Testament... There was the temple and the nation of Israel, and now we're in the church. Whether you even go that far, you just go, now we're the church, and this is this other thing. And uh, you completely like uh, separate these two items, and, and so it really doesn't uh, bear a lot of weight for you to say something like, God is holy, and God is here. Because you've, you've sort of relegated your understanding backwards instead of forwards. And so, um, let me... Uh, let me show you a couple places where this is importantly stated. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, uh, You yourselves are like living stones, and you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there you are, being built up together, uh, reference to the temple being the place where God dwells. You're being built together. You, the church, are. And then he goes on in verse 9 to say, And you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this isn't Peter's um, original thought. He's stealing this directly from Exodus. He's stealing this from God's declaration over the nation of Israel that you will be my people, and I will be your God, and you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if you will obey my commandments. And um, the whole purpose of this is, importantly, uh, so that other people recognize who Yahweh is. That this God of this nation is different than all the other gods. And that's, a, that's an important idea to, to hold on to. So, um, in... Uh, oh, I, I think I'm, uh, I skipped back. But in, in uh, Exodus chapter 19, if you were to flip over to that... Uh, this morning. You don't have to, but I will. Exodus chapter 19 is all the story about the preparation of the people to receive the law. So at the, uh, at the beginning of chapter 19, um, the, the Lord calls Moses and he says, listen, you, you, uh, now therefore in verse 5, you will indeed be, obey my voice, keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. So God says, I own everything, but among everything that I own, you're going to be specifically special. You will keep my covenant. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So are the words that you shall speak to the um, people of Israel. Now, if you skip down and you get to, um, uh, to verse 10 and on to uh, the, the preparations that God gives to the people to prepare for um, them coming uh, for, for his coming to the mountain. And it says, when Moses uh, told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments 
And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on the Mount, on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So he tells them, look, you guys, you have to go and you have to wash your clothes. They're consecrating themselves. They're preparing themselves for a God to come who is holy. And so he, he goes on to say um, that even the mountain shall have a, a, a barrier around it. And when God is there, it's a holy mountain. No one should even touch it. Not man or beast. No one is allowed to touch the mountain lest they uh, are killed. So um, Exodus chapter 19 shows us a story of um, when, when God originally declared this over the people and the purpose for his doing so is because he's holy. Now, um, we need to have a, a good definition of holy. So let me, uh, let me help you with this. So this is for today and next week and, and ongoing. Say, holy is a, design, a designation or a declaration of being devoted for a specific purpose. That's as it applies to us. God is holy in and of himself because he's, he's separate. He is unlike us. There's, he's uncommon, if you want to put it that way. So... Um, the second part of this is holy is to be other. It's to be set apart. So being called one of God's people. So when God says, I'm holy, and I'm calling you one of my people, you are my, my treasured possession, you are now being designated as holy. This is a, an important idea because the church is, is, by definition, a people who are called out from among others. That's the, if you... If you didn't know that, that's the, that's the literal definition of the word that we translate church, the ecclesia, right? It means to be called out from the peoples for a specific purpose. So your purpose is to, to be holy, to show other people the holiness of God. Now, um, here we have, uh, at, the, at the end of chapter 4 of Acts, um, Luke is doing some specific work to to do this. And you're like, what? Mitch, this was not a very good um, cup, cup trick, right? Normally the cups are supposed to be opaque, right? So that you, you can't see through them and you don't know where the ball is and maybe I'd fool you, maybe I don't. Uh, specifically, Luke is doing this. He, he wants you to see the transition and he wants you to see that where God used to be in the temple and his presence is, it's here now. His presence is here. And all the stuff that he did here, he's going to do here. And not to mistake this as a different thing. Because you could easily just say, well, the Jesus religion is not the Yahweh religion. It's a new thing. And, and it's a new covenant. And therefore, it's, uh, it's separate and distinct from what God has been doing in the past. And it's really important that you don't break those things apart. It's a progressive, uh, it's a progressive revelation of what's happening. So we're supposed, to, we're supposed to, with Luke, follow the ball if you will. We're supposed to follow the ball from where it used to be in the temple to where it seems to be now, which is, and, and the ball in this case is, is God's presence. And, and so, um, maybe this uh, graphic can help you out. So, I can't see if you guys can see it. There we go. So, uh, important things about um, God's presence and uh, how we see it develop in history. So, uh, we have God's presence in Eden, and uh, whether you realize that or not, Adam and Eve are the first priests in, in the garden. This is the first temple, if you will. And it's holy. It's a sacred space because God is there. And it's for a specific purpose, for God's people to be with him. Well, you, you move forward after the fracture and the separation of that, and we trace that to the tabernacle. After Israel's brought out, God says, that's what we just read in Exodus 19, I'm, I'm going to be with you. My presence will be there, but I'm holy. 
So here's some things. I'm, I'm going to designate a people to represent you. That's what the priests do. They represent you before God. And so there's a people that represent you, and my presence is going to be there, but it's holy. And so there's some rules that uh, are surrounding that. And there's some, some, some things that you need to there's some things you need to do in, uh, in response to this. And then that, uh, that thing that moved around, the tabernacle gets moved into the temple. And so um, God's presence lights the fire at the dedication of the temple. And so his presence is there. Well, then we, we have Jesus come. That's why he gets a special color. And here's Jesus. And we're told Jesus is the substance of what all these things were, were foreshadowing. Because God's presence is literally all of its fullness in Christ. So as Jesus is here, um, that is literally as close as we have ever been since Eden to, to being with God. And of course, Christ was obedient. He followed the law. And he's called now our high priest. Ta-da! He, he represents us before God. Well, um, since then, um, we have a, a, a benefit that was not afforded to the tabernacle or was not afforded to the temple. It's, it's God's Holy Spirit. And so we, we live in an age called the age of the Spirit, which was one that was foretold. And so Luke's doing a lot of work to connect all the prophecies of the Old Testament to the reality of this is what God's doing. This is still his presence, but now it's not, it's not, uh, it's not relegated away. It's not only for the priests, but it's literally in and among, among all of the people. And so... Um, that's what's happening here, and that's why uh, I pointed out last week that Barnabas is specifically one of the people of the many who are selling their houses. Well, why does he highlight Barnabas? Well, because he's a Levite. He was supposed to be of the priestly line. And now, guess what this priest is doing? He's doing what he always should have been doing. Now, um, I want you to see that this was a fulfillment of what they were told to do. In, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says this, there will be no poor among you. However, because the Lord will surely bless you in the land uh, that the Lord your, your God is giving you to possess an inheritance. Look at, at what it said at the end of chapter 4. It says, there was, none, there was no one who needy. Why? Because they're, they're doing what God had commanded them to do. To, to love God and love others. And so here it is, this, uh, this priest who now has, uh, who, who has the Holy Spirit is, is doing what he should have done. And he's bringing his offering and he's serving the community of God. And he's honoring the name of the Lord. Now this is contrasted as we move to chapter 5 with, um, with Ananias and Sapphira. So um, Barnabas gets, or excuse me, Joseph gets this name Barnabas, by the way. And so uh, lest I just skip over this without getting the opportunity to say it. Um, he's named for what he's known for. And uh, we, we pick names that we like to hear. They pick names that they wanted people to fulfill. So if your name meant something, that was kind of like a designation of your, your character, your personality. And God renaming people all throughout Scripture is an important thing uh, as it, it's like who they were and then who God calls them to be. And they fulfill that purpose. And so here we have Barnabas. And his name means son of encouragement. He appears several other times throughout Acts. And uh, he becomes one of the great uh, catalysts to these missionary journeys with Paul. And so, um, you know, just as a, put it in your pocket and think about it later, like if, if we were going to nickname you for what you're known for, would you, would you be, 
you know, son or daughter of discouragement or son or daughter of negativity? Or would you be like encouragement and, and love or, or something like that? And um, you should think about that in terms of, uh, you know, God, God calls us as he sees us and he gives us names. And uh, I, I think there's, uh, there's something more to this than just that they, they gave him a fun nickname that they like to call him. Um, he's fulfilling this. It's literally um, his character and who he is. And so um, there's, there's one more thing that uh, I, I, this story uh, of Ananias and Sapphira uh, is a, an echo, if you will, of something that already happened in um, the Old Testament. And so to disconnect it from this, this other story is to miss the purpose of why Luke puts it here. And um, so that, that story is in um, Leviticus chapter 10. And um, so uh, Aaron is designated as the, the high priest. That's Moses' brother. And he has two sons. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. And um, God has given all of the law and the regulations and how the uh, priests are supposed to serve and specifically what they're supposed to do, how the offerings, all of the whole deal, the whole deal. And um, right away, like straight out of the gate, um, Nadab and Abihu decide that they're going to offer the, 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 it's kind of a funny term, but it's called strange fire or unauthorized fire. So they decide to light the incense altar with fire that was not authorized by God. God said, this is the fire you can use, and uh, that's it. No, no other kind. And so out of this uh, story, um, in Leviticus chapter 10, I, I want you to listen to the details of this and see if uh, they ring familiar. So because they offered unauthorized fire, fire came out from before the Lord, and it consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Pay, pay special attention to God's correction here. For those that are close to me, where my presence is, I will be sanctified. And I will be honored. I will be glorified among them. Okay? And then it goes on to say that uh, because this was the response, uh, Aaron had no answer. And so... Um, so after this, uh, Moses commands uh, these other young men, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary out of the camp. So they came near and they carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. Um, so there's some elements of this story of, of Nadab and Abihu offering unauthorized, and, and they were priests. They were supposed to be uh, following the rules. And they offer this unauthorized fire. God kills them. They're consumed with fire. They're dead at the front of the sanctuary. Um, Moses makes this declaration from God. Anybody that's going to be near me must revere me as holy, must revere me as God. And, uh, and then he has the young men come and carry them out. He says he wraps them in their coats and they carry them out. Now, the story that we just read of Ananias and Sapphira, different, different uh, manifestation of the same sin. Different manifestation of the same sin. They come, they offer only a part of their offering. Now, um, part of the, the, the command was that uh, any offering that was brought uh, was, if it was, it was part of the tithe, it, it had to be whole. It had to be perfect, unblemished. If it was part of uh, a sacrifice, it must be uh, uncontaminated. And that was uh, part of the Old Testament system. But now we're in the New Testament. So you're like, well, is the problem, you know, that they didn't bring all of the money? Is that the problem? Um, that's not the problem. That's the manifestation of the underlying sin. 
So the question we need to ask is, is what is, what is the underlying sin? What is actually the cause? Uh, 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 Why does God respond in this way? Well, look with me real quick. But a a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's, it says it's the full knowledge. So they're, they're complicit in this. They've worked together. It's been discussed out beforehand. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and he only brought part of it. And he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, um, I think it's important that you recognize that this wasn't uh, just Ananias or just Sapphira. And it's got echoes now of, um, of Eden, where the man and the woman sin, And God comes, and he's like, what, what happened? And they, they had uh, talked about it, evidently at one point. They conspired, and Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, right? And, and so what you see here is um, the reality that a bad influence isn't always something that comes from without, but occasionally it comes from within. So we, we tend to overemphasize the reality that like, we ought not to listen to people who are outside because they might lead us the wrong direction. And that's absolutely true. It's just, uh, you know, bad, uh, bad company corrupts good character, right? But sometimes close company can corrupt good character too. Because we, we don't use the same scrutiny uh, towards other people's opinions of us. And sometimes a sympathetic ear can lead us astray. And, um, you know, when, when Peter is... Uh, just after his declaration that uh, Jesus is Lord, and, uh, and, and Jesus kind of celebrates him. He says, man, blessed are you, Peter, that wasn't man that revealed this to you, but God. And so he's kind of riding a high. And then Jesus, right after that, says he's going to go to the cross, and that he's going to be killed. And Peter's, Peter then begins to rebuke Jesus. He says, no, Lord, it will never be this way, right? And then, and, and then um, Jesus' response to Peter right after that is, get behind me, Satan if you're not familiar with the story. So we went from high to like, you know, Satan, okay? And, uh, and so what's Peter doing in this moment but trying to be a good friend? He's trying to be uh, what, what, what he thinks Jesus needs in this moment. And uh, there's, there's something important that we should, we should grasp to. Because, um, you know, when, whenever I, uh, if I... If I'm doing something I ought not to do, and, uh, but I'm very self-pitying about it, I often will go to Rebecca, right? And I'll be like, you know, I'm just griping and grumbling or whatever. And because she loves me, she'll lend me a sympathetic ear. But if she doesn't correct me after that or point me down the right path, then she's complicit in my, my wrongdoing. And that's, that's often what happens is that in, in an effort to love somebody, we forget to correct them. And, um, and so there's layers of this. There's levels of this because the people that are closest to us, what we tend to use the least amount of scrutiny for. And because they have the most love for us, they give the least amount of correction to us uh, for the most part. Now, because we, we allow motion to drive a lot of that. And, and you, you need to understand that um, the connectedness of the community of people was, was for the purpose of, of um, eliminating this kind of error. So, so what Ananias and Sapphira have done effectively is isolate themselves from among the community of people. One, for the fact that they would say, you know, we need some of this for ourselves. You know, that, that, as they're talking about this money. Don't we deserve this? You know, this is our retirement. I don't know how the conversation went, but eventually they come to the conclusion together in some sort of self, you know, valuing way where they decide their little 
cohort is more important than the community at large. And so they've sort of isolated themselves, if you want to look at it that way, uh, from the community. And so um, what you miss now is that what God intended to be this close, tight, knit together people are really bundles of people. They're like factions and splintered. And that when something happens, those things splinter easily if they're not well connected. And, and um, so that's precisely what's happened here. And it says um, in scripture that, that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking for whom he may devour. Heard this? Yes. Who do lions devour? Did they jump into the middle of the pack to find the guy that's, you know, surrounded by all the other animals? No. They look for the stragglers, you know, the, the weak, those who are, are kind of lagging behind, spending an extra 10 minutes at the watering hole after everybody else has moved on, right? Yes. Yes. That's, that's how lions work, okay? You are connected to the community in such a way that um, to, to disconnect yourself is to put yourself in harm's way. And, um, we, we miss the, um, the importance of the communal aspect of that God is saving a people. He's saving individuals for a people. That people is collective. And um, you're going to hear that over and over. So um, we, we need to be aware of being overly insulated from the kind of connection and correction that is provided in the community of God. Okay? You, don't, you isolate yourself you're not connected to others. You don't have the, the kinds of heart-level connections to them that you've, you want to help them out. You want to serve them. You consider others better than yourselves. You love them with the love of God. You, when, you, when you sever that for the benefit of, of something personal, um, and, and also when we uh, segment ourselves away from any kind of correction outside. So the results of this is that it says they decided to keep back for himself. Um, this, uh, this word to keep back for himself is literally, it's other places translated to steal. But um, the reality here is that God is looking at whatever it is that they've decided to give here as something that, um, that belongs fully to him. And they've decided to take some of that for themselves. There's a story of Achan in the Old Testament who um, kept some of the spoils of conquering, uh, as the Israelites are going in, they're conquering the promised land, and he hides some of it in the family tent. And it goes a lot like this, where his sin is found out, and uh, they, all, they all suffer the consequences. And importantly, uh, now also relating to that community aspect, is it's not just Achan that dies. His whole family line is ended because of this sin. So there, there, is, there is communal consequence to um, individual sin. We'll talk about that more next week. So um, Peter asks, like, Ananias, how, how has uh, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why has Satan filled your heart? And we just got through walking through um, this, this other idea where, where the Holy Spirit is coming. He's filled all the people and they're, they're serving God and they're loving God and they're speaking the word of God. And uh, so we have this contrast here, a picture of a spirit-filled people who are united together, one heart, one mind, having all things in common. And now we have this guy who's filled with Satan, who's disconnected, and who, who is uh, of another heart, of a, of a selfish motive, and of another kind. And so... Um, the battle for us, as I said last week, is always to trust the Spirit amidst the temptations of the flesh. To trust the Spirit even though you're, you're walking in the flesh. And this is constantly contrasted for us. Paul um, exhorts us, like, be, be filled with the Spirit. Because it's something you, you need to continually seek. It's not something that happens once and you're good forever. 
Because you can uh, quench the Spirit, you can push it out, and you can decide to walk in your flesh. And this is what happens all the time when we do that. It's called loving the world. And so what here amounts, uh, filling amounts to, is control. This is, uh, again, Paul saying, um, do not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why, why does he use wine? Because when you drink a lot of wine, you're under the influence, right? And you lose your inhibition. You lack control at that point. And you follow whatever desire or fleshly thing that you want. And so instead, um, to be filled with the Spirit is to be in control of yourself, in controlling the flesh. And uh, so, so what's happened here is they've, they've given um, Satan a foothold, if I could say it that way. So uh, the, the first part of that first Peter passion, first Peter passage, first Peter two five said, "You are being built up as living stones into the temple of God, and you are a temple of the Spirit individually and collectively." So here we have a question. I think if I can point it out for you, how is it that if these people are believers and they have the Holy Spirit? that it says that Satan has filled their heart. Well, you've already seen one example, or I pointed out one example, where Peter himself is, is called to be Satan. He says, Satan, get behind me. Jesus says that to Peter. But then also we're told that Judas is, um, fills, uh, Satan fills Judas's heart to betray the Lord. And so uh, is the problem here that uh, Holy Spirit people can never be filled with Satan? So that, this is an important question for, for you to answer. And um, if I can help you um, understand this a little better, I would explain it in, in legal terms. You can allow Satan to occupy space in your life, but he doesn't have a right over it if you belong to God. So, so effectively what you're doing is you're allowing somebody to squat on your or God's possession illegally. And you're giving him ground. This is why, uh, this is why you're commanded in Scripture not to give Satan a, a place you're not to give him a hold in your life because all of you belongs to God. Legally, if you want to think about it that way, you are God's property. You are my people, right? So you belong to God, but you can allow Satan to just come in and give influence over your life. And uh, though he doesn't own you, though uh, you don't belong to him, you've given him uh, the, the ability to, to influence you. So if you belong to Christ, you can choose, if I can say it this way, to... to um, be filled with the Spirit to follow God or to give Satan a foothold in your life. And so what's happened here is that Satan has, um, has filled Ananias' heart. And what he's done is that Satan doesn't do any of your sinning for you, but he can sure embolden you to do something stupid and commit sin. You, you do all your sinning on your own. Um, notice that he says, why did you conceive this deed in your heart? This is exactly what James says about temptation. Temptation starts when you have a desire in your heart and you feed that desire and then when it becomes full grown, it becomes uh, unto temptation a sin. So it, it talks about the idea of, of um, that thing giving birth, but it first originates in you. Now, Satan may surround you with circumstances or people or certain words that embolden you towards that sin, but you go ahead and follow, it is, follow what it is that you want to do and you find yourself um, in, in this exact position where you may be accused of, of being filled uh, with Satan into doing something wrong. So he says, why did you do this to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? And then he asked this question that should fix any wrong notions that we have about um, economic schemes or political persuasions or really anything about compelled giving 
in, in uh, the New Testament. Peter just asks a simple question. Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? Was it not yours, effectively, is the question. Was it, was it not yours? And the answer, of course, rhetorically is yes, it was his. And he said, even after you sold it, did it not remain in your control? As in, was there, at any point, was, uh, was it out of your grasp to, to do anything other with it? It's not like you were compelled by some other person, forced to only give part of the proceeds of this. And so, um, this, this challenge here is a, a penetrating question for us to consider. Because was it not yours is the question of what does ownership really mean? What does ownership really mean? So when I, when, when I ask you, is that yours? You're like, I don't know, maybe you go through a checklist. Yes, I, I bought it or, you know, I've always had it or somebody gave it to me. And so like, I possess this thing. It is, is mine. So in what sense um, is anything really ours? Because we are called, if you're a Christian, God's, God's possession and not, not just any possession, but his treasured possession. It, it means something that uh, we belong to him. So if God owns us, then he also owns our stuff. But he also owns our stuff, not just by virtue of owning us, but because he's the one that created all that stuff. And he's the one that gives all that stuff. Paul asked the question rhetorically, what do you have that you did not first receive? And if you did receive it, why do you pretend that you um, got it for yourself? And uh, so true ownership is about the right of defining what is the right or wrong thing to do with something. So true ownership is, is about providing the right of defining what is good or bad. And that only belongs to God. So everything else subsequent to that is simply a question of, of stewardship. And stewardship in this sense is managing control. Managing control. You have control over it. That's, that's the question he asked. Was it not yours in the sense of you had management and control over what was to be done with this offering, this, this gift? So this, this puts away any idea that uh, it was compelled, that he was required to give it, that they were required to give all of it. All of the point of this is that, listen, you, you, you had management and control over it and, and you did not owe really any of it. So tithing is not a, a command at all in the New Testament. Um, but giving is. Giving is because giving is a reflection of who God is. And if you're God's and his spirit is in you, then you should be like the one whose spirit is in you. And um, uh, this, this, this bears out for the whole community and, and us individually. Um, when scripture tells us that, that God loves a cheerful giver, um, it's because there's no other kind. There, there is no other kind. If, 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 if you are not giving cheerfully, then uh, you're, you're, you're doing something else. You're being compelled. You're, you're not giving. You're, you're either buying or you're repaying or you're buying off. So giving grudgingly or under compulsion isn't giving. It's paying for something. It's repaying something or it's buying off something. So how does this come out in, in our giving or our generosity? Well, if, if uh, Ananias looks at this situation and he says, if we don't give all of this, then people are going to think we're selfish. And in that sense, he's buying off people's opinions of who he is. He's not, he's not giving anything. He, it's being compelled by some other greater thing that has a hold of his heart. And now, now you might start to see what sin is underneath 
the manifestation of the fact that they just didn't give everything. There's something else that's more compelling to Ananias and Sapphira besides God's holiness and his name and reflecting his character. So in, um, in Exodus 19, where, where God tells the people to consecrate themselves, literally prepare yourselves because I'm holy. Um, and he says, like, go wash your clothes. And, and then uh, don't touch the mountain. So by, by washing their clothes, are they made holy? Are they made, are they made sinless? No. No. What are, what are they doing and why are they doing it? Well, um, there's, there's a few different things that we're commanded to do in light of God's holiness and the fact that he's going to, to be among us. He's going to give us his, his presence. Um, we, should, uh, we should respond to that by his declaration, look, you're going to be, I'm your God, uh, you're my people, and we respond to that by, by being obedient to what it is that he says. Um, we should reflect the fact that, uh, that he's holy. That's what he's asking for. Look, I, I'm, I'm without sin, and, and you should be a representation of who I am. And so, um, by, by washing your clothes, you're showing that you can't just approach me any way that you want to. That, that uh, there, there's something required of you. And, um, and, and I'm not like uh, other gods. And then, uh, so they're reflecting that character of God. And the, the last part of that is that they should revere him. He says, don't come, don't, don't even touch the mountain lest you be killed. So, so the fact that they respect who God is because he's holy. They respect um, what, it, what it means to have his name and his presence among them. And this is the same thing now that, uh, okay? If it mattered in the tabernacle, it matters in the church. If, if this is what's required because God is holy, it has not changed. God require, wants your response to his holiness. And he, he wants you to reflect his holiness. So you don't just not sin because, uh, well, by sinning, I, I hope to get to sinless perfection so that he'll let me into heaven. That's the wrong motivation. You're not supposed to sin because your God is holy. And you're, a, you're supposed to be a reflection of who he is. Not just because he gave you commands from the outside, but because you're, you're, you're declaring to other people, God lives within me. And so if you say God lives within me, and then you live like a hellion, what does that say about the God that's within you? It doesn't declare his holiness. In fact, it's the, it's the exact opposite, right? So, so we're, we're, we're to reflect who he is, and um, we're supposed to revere that truth. We're supposed to, we're supposed to care that, that he's, um, he's bestowed this great um, honor to us, that, that literally we, we get to steward his name, that we get to steward his presence. And if that's not a motivating value for you, I question whether or not you, you, know, you know God. Because the work of the Spirit is to glorify God. So if he's in you, he's going to do that which is uh, his nature. He's going to make you holy. He's, he's going to make you increase in your devotion and love for Christ. That is what, that's what the Holy Spirit does. So, um, this question, was it not yours? It's a question of stewardship. Um, giving is not compelled. But then it says this. Um, oh, let me add this. Sorry, before I end. Possession of, of worldly goods is simply managing control. And that's the question of stewardship that we get over and over. And it's not just over things. It's over also um, 
spiritual matters. It's, it's over God's spirit and it's over um, the life that he's given you. So it's a test of what's in your heart measured by the kinds of decisions that you, you make. So how, how does God know what's in your heart? How do other people know what's in your heart? But by the stuff that you do. They don't, you know, directly get a peer into your soul. But the kinds of things that you do show what's in your heart. This is why James makes this association and why Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah all say the same thing. That because your heart is corrupted and Jesus, thank goodness, right? So it's the same thing. Because your heart is messed up, this is why you sin. It's what comes out of you that's the problem. But once you've been regenerated, once you have this new heart, once you have the spirit, things should be transformed. And then the measurement of what's in your heart is, is seen by the love that you give, the, the way that you act. So your life, your stuff is a testimony. It's a witness to the Holy Spirit of God. So look, uh, let's, let's pick it up here. Um, when Anna and I, uh, so it says, why'd you can try this in your heart? You, you have not lied to man, but to God. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down. He breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and they wrapped him up. And they carried him and buried him out. And you should read that line and think immediately of the story of Nadab and Abihu. We're consumed by the Lord. They call him out. They call on the young men and they, it says wraps them up in their coats and he, they take him outside the camp. So we have the same element here. And then it says after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. Um, they contrived together. They conceived this deed, but they sinned individually. And they both give an account individually. So, uh, whether or not you, you, uh, you throw in with some greater sin, you, you'll, you'll still be held accountable individually. And I think the three hours is meant to show us that. They didn't, they didn't kind of stand trial together. Though that wouldn't be the worst thing because when you're married, two become one. And if I mess it up, I mess it up for both of us. So, uh, but here's the thing. He, he, he asked Ananias. He was questioned. He died. Then she comes in and it says she didn't know what had happened. And Peter asked her the same question. And there's her opportunity. There's her opportunity to stand on her own and say, uh, no, that was a lie. But she doesn't, right? She, she carries it out. Yes, it was for that much. And she too um, is judged and she dies. And so, um, so we're, we're, we're responsible for our own, our own sin. But in some sense, there's a collective warning there. Just like as uh, Moses was instructed to tell the people, don't touch the mountain. Put a barrier around the mountain, lest any man or beast or anything touch it. And so Moses tells um, the leaders, the leaders tell um, the heads of the household, and like, you, you have to tell your kid that day, look, don't play near the mountain, because if you fall over and accidentally touch the mountain, God's going to kill you. It, 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 it's, it's our responsibility to encourage one another towards, um, towards holiness, towards obedience. And... Um, and so there's the opportunity to, to stand both together and individually. And uh, so they ask this question, why have you agreed together to test the Lord? Um, very quickly, there's, there's two kinds of testing in Scripture. One is translated as tempt um, often. And so one always has like a, a positive connotation. It means to prove the value of something. And uh, this is where we get the idea of, um, to, to prove like a, a certain metal as, as a, a certain value, like gold or gold refined by fire, or silver that's been um, purified. And so that, that kind of testing is, um, 
is used uh, of God. But then there's another kind of test that uh, can have a negative or a positive connotation. And, um, and, and this is uh, the, the one that's translated as tempt. And it's one that uh, is Satan's, one of his nicknames, right? Called the, the tempter. And, uh, and this is the, um, the word that's used here. When it says um, that they have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. So effectively what this is pointing out is, is that this couple is contrived together with doubt in their hearts. Unbelief about something. What that something is, uh, I don't know that we have enough information. We can kind of dig underneath and, 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 uh, and work to it. But I think it's important that you see this. It's, it's in, in connection with the, the idea together that the Holy Spirit of God that's in the church and, 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 and with the apostles could, could somehow be indifferent to, to faithlessness, to unbelief in their heart regarding either the holiness of God's name, his requirements of, of um, respect and reverence for who he is, something in, inside of this sin. It's, it's not the egregious nature of, of skimming some off the top. And if you walk away from um, if you walk away from this story thinking that, you've, you've missed it. Uh, and, and this is the problem, because we want to make this about giving. And, and the problem is, you can probably, in your own lives, come to some way that you've sinned in a much, I, I would, by my estimation, in my own life, say, I feel like that's a little worse than selling and giving a bunch to the church. I don't know how much they kept, but like, surely you've done something in your life that you would feel like, I feel like that maybe, I mean, if we're ranking sins, like, that's probably worse. Are you, are you tracking with that idea? Right? So it's not just about, well, if you don't give 100% of your offering, then God's going to smite you. Like, do you, you see the problem with, with landing there? Okay? It's, it's what's beneath that. And, um, and then, in connection with this value, why doesn't God continue to, to judge in this way? And, and, uh, and that's an important question um, that, that I'm going to answer, but I'm not going to do it this week. So, um, real quick, as it relates to their, their testing God, and uh, earlier where he, he told Ananias, you have not lied to God, or so you not lied to man, but you've lied to God. And that's, that's the egregious sin. You, you can lie to people all day long. We do. We, we put on pretenses, whether we do it explicitly or implicitly. If you, you know, even, even um, pretending to be uh, better off, okay, but really you're like falling apart. It's a pretense. It's hypocrisy. And we, we, lie, to, we lie to men all the time, but, but do you think that you can lie to God in relationship to him? And I don't think they sat down and explicitly said, I think we can pull one over on the Lord Jesus, right? I don't think that's what happened. I think it, it, it stopped at this more superficial thing without ever examining the deeper problem. And it, and it creates uh, a, a ton of issues, but the result of it is beneficial. Look at the, just the last, uh, in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church. Um, when, when, uh, when David commits this, this great sin as king uh, with Bathsheba, um, you know, he, he, he basically murders his wife. I mean, he goes through all these different things. I mean, he commits a myriad of sin, or murders his, I said wife, murders her husband. 
That would be today, though, wouldn't it? Uh, okay, so he commits all these egregious sins. The, the prophet Nathan comes to him, and he challenges him. And his resolution on the, the thing isn't, I see how I've sinned against the nation. I see how I've sinned against my office. I see how I've sinned against Bathsheba. I see how I've sinned against Uriah. He doesn't go to any of those things. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. You can do bad things to other people, and those are sins, but you ultimately can only sin against God because he's the only one that's holy. So all of your sins are, are, whether they involve someone else or are directed towards someone else, ultimately are sins against God. And that's, that's where we need to terminate our thoughts at. Do not test the Lord in this. What they've done effectively, Ananias and Sapphira, is they've allowed their personal fleshly doubts to drive them to sin. And they test God in the fact of, will, he, does he, will it really matter if we carry this unbelief and, and we, we show it out with this lie of pretense that we're these generous, giving people and we think that we can fool other people. And by fooling other people, we think that we can fool God. But ultimately, it will be held to account. So again, think of it like, like the kitchen, okay? If you go in and you're preparing chicken that night, you might take some time to like wash the counters before you make your food. But even after you, you, know, you use the cutting board or you, you open the package, you go and you wash your hands, right? And you, maybe you cut up the chicken, you, you fry it, and then you, you put the cutting board in the sink and the dishwasher. I mean, you, you wash everything off. Why? Because you're, you're worried about this contamination of, of salmonella. You don't want to get sick, right? And uh, unfortunately, we have more respect for salmonella than we do for the holiness of God. But you, you will go out of your way to wash your hands twice or make sure that your, your, your meat is cooked to the right temperature, but you'll carry all kinds of sins right under the surface. And that's not me like trying to guilt you into you know, public confession. It's, it's me pointing out the reality that you've not tracked the ball. It, it was important then, it's important now because God expects a response to his holiness. God is holy. The Holy Spirit of God, if he's in us as a church and he's in us individually, then his presence should be responded to. That means if I'm in sin and uh, somebody points it out to me, like I, I need to respond to that, that correction. And it needs to be respected, the fact that uh, I am not the arbiter of what's right. I am not the standard of holiness. God's word is and God himself is. So, so we pursue that end. And that should be reflected in all that we do and all that we say. Instead of, um, I said this last week and I, I, I say it occasionally and I feel like I don't quite articulate the way I mean it, but sometimes we can revel in grace so much that we, we, we mute or we, we squash or we hide the holiness of God because of grace. Yes, there's grace. Yes, yes he provides abundantly for your sins. And his mercy is always there. But we ought not to pursue sin, knowing that that's there, to mute the truth that God is holy. And it's not about trying to achieve sinless perfection. It's just about realizing that you carry his name, Christian. You, you carry the name of Christ. And whatever you do with that name is a reflection on who Jesus is. 
Are you saying that Jesus is nobody? He, he doesn't care about how I act. He's really not that important. He's not all that powerful. He can't get me out of temptation. And in fact, I don't really care if uh, I avoid this thing or not. These are the kinds of things that, that you're speaking without words as you carry his name through the world. So, so the reality that um, this story is, yes, the manifestation of it is, um, is about giving. But underneath that, it's really about us recognizing that God has always demanded the same thing of his people, his community. Where my presence is, those who will be near me will revere me. They will sanctify me and they will glorify me. That's, that's what God said as, after he killed Nadab and Abihu. So if you want to look it up, Leviticus chapter 10, that's the command. We must revere his holiness. So this morning, um, as we conclude, I'm going to pray. We're going to go to um, communion. And I, I want you to, to understand that um, the community is here not to, to heap shame or to, to make you feel more or less guilt. The community is here for your encouragement. And it, so here's my, here's my hopeful encouragement for you this morning. I don't actually know what your particular heart of hearts perspective is on Pastor Mitch, okay? But guys, I, I am a sinner in need of God's grace as much as you are. And so don't, don't look at me as the standard if, if, if you are, or don't think that I'm somehow above, you know, messing up or, or, or doing things that... Uh, would turn me different shades of crimson up here where I happen to reveal them. But the point is that we push forward in holiness, not that we, we push forward in, in sinfulness. We don't just go, oh, well, even he can't do it. But that we encourage one another towards confession before God. So my encouragement for you this morning is to recognize that um, he's called you to be a representative of his name. You are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, not a, not a sinful rebel group. You belong to God. You're his possession. You're his treasured possession. Reflect, respond accordingly. Father God, you're good.